Greetings and welcome to Mind Matters News. Is the mind the same thing as the brain? This question, known as the mind-brain problem, is the topic of the groundbreaking book Minding the Brain by Angus Manoj, Brian R. Krauss, and Robert J. Marks. Inside, you can find chapters from neurosurgeon Michael Egnor and philosopher Joshua Ferris. Their chapters, titled Neuroscience and Dualism and Subject Unity and Subject Consciousness, examine consciousness and make a strong case based on neuroscience that the mind indeed is more than the brain. Today, we have the conclusion of Dr. Egnor's three-part interview with Dr. Ferris. Enjoy! Welcome to Mind Matters News. This is Mike Egner. I have the uh, pleasure and privilege to uh, speak with uh, my friend uh, Joshua Ferris. Joshua is a theologian and um, is the Humboldt Experience Scholar Fellow at Ruhr University in Bochum in Germany. Uh, and he has published, uh, or he is publishing a new book, uh, The Creation of Self, uh, which looks to be an absolutely fascinating discussion of uh, neo neo Cartesian understanding of the soul, uh, and in this segment, uh, I just want to ask. Certainly, we're we're facing in uh, in Western culture right now some some really remarkable uh, uh, and quite divisive uh, issues, uh, such as transgenderism, um, abortion, the question of when life begins. Uh, questions about end-of-life care and whether euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide are, uh, are ethical things. And um, is there any um, light shed by the neo-Cartesian understanding of the human soul um, on these uh, these divisive cultural issues? Yeah, good question. Yeah, that's a, a big question. In my, in my book, um, The Creation of Self, I don't deal with these sorts of questions. Uh, directly, uh, I, I do give some credence to a view of the mind-body that that would uh, have implications for some of these issues. There's different ways to understand how the body contributes to the soul. One of the more crude ways is, and I, I think this has some viability and, and some or some validity to it, is that the body supplies certain controls and powers to the soul that uh, would otherwise not be there. Um, certainly. It applies or supplies certain powers of epistemic powers, uh, ways of knowing the world, ways of interacting socially, ways of interacting in, in relationships, ways of interacting and gaining knowledge in the physical world that uh, I don't think can be um, overstated. Now, uh, that crude picture lends itself to a common objection to Cartesianism given by famous philosophers like Gilbert, Gilbert Ryle, who, uh, and, and later philosophers as, um, uh, like Anthony Kinney, Gilbert Ryle gives this picture and he says, well, Cartesianism, and he's really responding to the whole substance dualist in, in general. He says, uh, this, um, gives us a picture of a man, a little man. And actually he says a ghost in a machine. That's his famous analogy. Anthony Kinney picks up on that in his, uh, uh, criticism of, of substance dualism and says that, well, it's kind of like a man in a, a, a plane who has these various controls at his disposal. And I, I think that's, um, well, I think on the one hand, that is a helpful analogy for thinking about the body. It's, uh, it's an overly crude analogy that doesn't get at the, the heart of the, the deep integration between the mind and the body as the, the, the mind or the soul is a functionally integrated entity with the body, even if 
in terms of identity, the body is contingent. But a, a, a modern cultural critic might say, well, but, but what happens if the soul substance is female and um, just happened to get uh, you know, stuck in a, in, in a male body substance? Uh, so how, how, would it, how would the neo-Cartesian perspective help us answer the questions raised by the transgender movement? Well, I think um, I think we have to step back here for a moment. I, I think it's I think the whole uh, notion of of gendered souls is um, confused in the the first place. I don't think we get gender. Uh, we don't uh, ground gender by way of of um, of the soul. We can't. We can only ground gender by way of uh, biological sex. It seems to me so. If the soul is is an emergent product of a sufficiently complex brain or body, and it only comes into existence by way of of having a body, then there's a deep uh, integrated functionality between the soul and the body, such that to separate the body would do deep um, harm to the soul in the way that death does. <clears throat> but, I mean, but, death but, does but, harm the soul. Well, but but they're separate substances. So, so I mean, their their separability is inherent to the Cartesian view. I mean, it, you know, it might be a painful process or an, an unpleasant process, but they are inherently separate. So that's, that's that's sort of the cornerstone of the, of the Cartesian view. If they weren't inherently separate, then they would just be you know, something like hylomorphism. Well, I I think the separation language is is I I don't think they are separate in a functional sense. I don't think a soul functions properly without a, a body. So I, I right, think they're right, they're certainly right. distinct um, I, um, in terms of I, I, the, the conditions that make up identity, but they're not separate and they can't be separated. And to separate them would do a great harm to um, each substance, in particular the soul of substance. If the soul has a... I think so. Richard Swinburne talks about this a lot in his book, The Evolution of the Soul, where he talks about the fact that souls have a, a structure to them. And um, if they come into the world with this uh, fundamental structure, these generable properties that supply not just the control room, but actually um, a whole um, psychological structure, that psychological structure is not uh, something that is um, that is so um, functionally disconnected from the soul uh, like a hat is that I could take on and off without any um, incurring any 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 problems or penalties. Um, the body is much more um, uh, provides much more fundamental structures of and powers of the soul so in such a way that, it cannot be separated from the soul without doing harm to that soul. What sort of harm would it do? Well, uh, I think um, the most uh, egregious harm would be uh, death. Death would be a harm to the, the, the physical death would be a harm to the soul but in what? that the soul could not operate or function in the way that it, uh, that it normally does. Well, I mean, one one could one could imagine a, a, a person who's racked with cancer, uh, in excruciating pain uh, and suffering, who dies, um, and it, it would seem to me that in the Cartesian view that 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 wouldn't be a harm. Dying would actually be a relief. 
the soul is liberated from a body that that is not not really a nice place to live in anymore. Yeah, I, I so I, I don't I I don't think that a a view that takes seriously the com the compound nature of of being a human being, if we if we take it that souls are um, are naturally embodied, I don't think that I don't think that it leads to that conclusion. Um, because I don't think that the soul would would function properly anymore without the body, or or the the normal ways in which we operate as as in soul beings, um, the normal ways in which we operate, the normal ways in which we gain knowledge about the world. I don't think it entails that picture that um, that uh, even Plato uh, suggests that um, that the soul separated from the body is the soul is is kind of um, this sort of prison that uh, the soul is conjoined to that uh, that is a, a traumatic place of existence and it needs to get to a platonic heaven I've, i don't I, think it entails that sort of picture i feel that the 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 best argument for um substance substance dualism uh, at least in 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 you know a sort of a scientific sense is uh near-death experiences which actually i have, I have a great deal of problem reconciling with the Thomistic dualism, <laughs> but um, near-death experiences um, really just, I mean, are, are, are very clear echoes of the Platonic Cartesian understanding of the soul and the body as separate substances. Um, and the uh, almost universal description of people who have near-death uh, experiences, at, at least the, the positive experiences, um, is that it really is a, a release from suffering. That is, that they they pop out of their body, they look down at this broken body or this you know die or this dead body, and they're so happy to be out of it. <laughs> and uh, now, you know, whether these experiences are veridical or not is a whole another question. But um, if one accepts them as being real experiences of of of, of real metaphysical events. Um, it would seem that getting out of the body, at least in, at the time of death, is not such a bad thing. Well, yeah. So I don't think that um, I, I think we need to make a distinction between the good that the, the body provides and uh, a body that is is in a state of um, severe decay mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, to the point of death. You might say that. Um, that the natural state or habitat of the soul is a body and that the body supplies certain goods to the soul. Um, certain, uh, certainly it's a, it's a context in which virtues can be developed in, in a way that um, virtues could not be developed outside the body. But that would, uh, that would be distinct from the decaying body that is nearly a dead body, a corpse. You might say that um, it, it would be, be better to be released in some way, but that's, Certainly not the final state of the soul. Uh, that that would be a that would be a severely diminished state uh, without the body and uh, temporary. It might be a temporary relief from a severely decaying body, but it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be the ideal state of the soul itself. If the soul itself is naturally designed to be embodied and to have certain goods in light of the body to develop certain virtues in the body through the body uh then it wouldn't be the uh, the ideal state and in fact in christian theology it's not the ideal or final state the embodied state is the is the final state sure and sure. um so i think there's a distinction between the goods that the body supplies in this world 
and um, the bads that a decaying body supplies uh, to the soul as it's approaching death. But given the um, the goods that the, the body supplies, I think if uh, I think that gives us a different picture of this um, Platonic picture that it's it's better and always better to be disembodied. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so if a if a transgender activist made the argument that uh, Cartesianism supported the transgender perspective in the sense that you could imagine this this scrum of um, you know bodies being attached to souls and things like that that once in a while somebody would get the wrong body uh, and that um, it would seem to be that the the, the Cartesian perspective uh, opens up, the transgender perspective it kind of says oh yeah maybe that could happen whereas for example from an aristotelian thomistic perspective uh of essentialism uh that really wouldn't work that is that 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 we are who we are that, that we're born male or we're born female and that's our essence and um any uh dysphoria one experiences with that essence is mental illness there there it's it's not a metaphysical reality um, but so as a how would 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 you agree with the hypothetical transgender act activist that the Cartesian view you know, it could be interpreted as supportive in some situations of the notion that uh, a trans man is a man and a trans woman is a woman? So I think I, I think answering this question is a little bit more delicate on Cartesianism uh, because of the uh, modal conditions of body swapping possibilities. But given the um, sort of uh, deep imprint structure that the body supplies to the soul at origination, I, I, I think it's it's uh, the Cartesian picture that I am portraying and that any contemporary Cartesian is defending today, most contemporary Cartesians, I should say, lends itself much um, to, to uh, a much closer uh, picture like calamorphism, given the integration of the body and soul. But let me say this, I think... I think there's a, I think there's a confusion here um, that's hard to articulate. That's that's conflating objectivity and subjectivity. Uh, the Cartesian view does not lend itself to solipsism, and it doesn't lend itself to sort of a view that gender is something that is autonomous, uh, that that it's rooted in an autonomous ethic that you can just simply slip on and off at your volition mm-hmm. so okay let's 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 understand that but some are actually arguing that souls are engendered and that they have access and they're obviously they're the only ones who have access to that because their um access is private that mm-hmm. does sound very cartesian so they're saying that yeah. they have access to a um a gendered soul that is not um that, that is incompatible with their, their body. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, um, I think if, if gender is something that is rooted biologically and only biologically, then the objective sense in which we can make sense of gender is something that is publicly discernible, it's objective, and it's rooted in the biological. If it is rooted in something else, um, I'm not sure what sufficient designation anyone's giving to that gender to make determinate that that gender is uh, what it is. 
it, it seems to be whole, a wholly um, socially constructed designation. And in that case, I think there's a, a conflation of, of the, the sort of biological sex with a socially constructed gender that, is, uh, that has no grounding in objective reality. So one thing I don't think Cartesians are doing is they're not, even, even if they take seriously the notion of subjectivity, which is, is really important right now, I think, um, in these discussions, they're not um, disentangling subjectivity from any sort of objectivity or any sort of objective metaphysical framework. But I think what you see happening in gender dysphoria and in this sort of notion of um, that sort of eschews the gender binary is um, it has no um, objective basis. It has no metaphysical grounding. And I don't think that's what Cartesians are doing. So I don't think you can, I, I don't think you can, in the way that they're suggesting, I don't think you can take if souls are truly non-gendered, I don't think you can conflate the non-gendered soul with a social construction that has been fabricated and then without any damage, take it outside of its original body and place it into a wholly distinct uh, body without doing damage to the soul. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, does that make sense? I think that's a yeah, yeah. A more I, um, complicated I, I, answer to that right. question. Right? No, no, no. And, and it's a, because it's a complicated question. It's a very, it's a, it's a very difficult question. The my my concern in in all of this again is it's not so much that I I I, I have an issue specifically with substance dualism. I, I have a an, an issue with the metaphysical. Um, framework in which substance dualism uh, uh, exists. Um, and um, I think the metaphysics gets pretty sticky. Uh, and, um, you know, if, if I were a transgender activist, I'd, I'd be glomming on to substance dualism. I'd, I'd, you know, I'm not a transgender activist. I, I think it's a sign of, uh, you know, cultural insanity, at least, and demonic possession uh, at most. But this substance dualism does seem to lend itself to understanding bodies and souls as things that can be switched out. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can always say, well, no, but that, you know, there, there's a, the, the soul is designed for the body and the body for the soul, but that is kind of a case of special pleading. If they're separate substances, you can imagine situations where you can switch them. But, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> we can imagine cases. They, yeah. At one level that points to the, it, po it points to a positive contribution of subs uh, substance dualism as a metaphysics that makes sense of possibilia, but uh, we can't point to any actual cases in which that is the case, where there's been a, a successful transference of a soul to a distinct body, nor can we point to a case where there's been a disconnect from a soul from its body that, that didn't actually do harm to the, the soul itself. When does ensoulment occur in human development? I think um, in some ways um, there's a metaphysical case to be made that ensoulment uh, occurs at, at conception. I think there's, there's a case to be made for that. Now, I think that epistemically fallible case 
on uh, either Cartesianism, a sort of integrated Cartesian view or a hylomorphic view. But I think you can make the case that it does occur at conception and some dualists have made that case. I, I don't think the, the objection is as strong as, as is often made. The trickier case with substance dualism is, is that there is no empirical way to make determinant that the immaterial substance is present. But I would, I would point to the empirical evidence as, as, as probabilistic, and I think we can, I think we can do that. And um, I, as, a, as a Christian, I would point to Revelation. I do deal with this in, in my Introduction to Theological Anthropology book. I, this is directed more at Christians because I think these sorts of definitive cases, I think, um, require Revelation to, to make determinative um, our epistemic um, understanding of the situations. And I think if, if we take uh, Christology seriously, then I think um, at every moment of, 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 of human life, including embryonic life, the divine logos assumes a human soul from the very beginning. And uh, for him not to do that would mean, um, would, would, would yield a kind of heresy, the heresy that's often uh, called Apollinarianism, that he did not assume a full human nature. And right. so on that basis, reasoning backwards, we can say that all humans are um, insold from the very beginning of conception, if in fact, what it means to be human is to, to have a soul. Mm-hmm. Then I think we can reason quite definitively that, in fact, at, at, from the very beginning, we are ensouled beings. And right. that we have a soul from the beginning of conception. Our embryos have souls, even if the empirical or the, the capacities of souls are not exhibited until later on in development. It doesn't mean that the soul is not present. And so, um, right. And of course, the, 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 the um, Aristotelian Thomistic view, uh, you know, broadly speaking, would would I think greatly simplify the issue? That is that the the view would be that the the soul is the form of the body, and the form is the intelligible principle of the body. And any time that you have a body that's alive, you have a soul. So an embryo which is a live body has a soul, and then the, the soul is just the sum of um, the uh, powers that the embryo has that make it alive. Um, so it, it's it, it 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 it's it just so that's one of the appeal that's one of the appealing aspects I think to the Thomistic view is that it enormously simplifies these these kind of sticky questions and just it's quite clear you know if you're if you're a live embryo you have a soul that's that's you know a live zygote has a soul because the soul just means that which makes it alive I, I, I there's a thought question that one could ask regarding souls in Cartesian dualism. That I think is kind of an interesting question. If if you have a set of identical twins, identical not uh, fraternal twins, and um, if uh, say that your 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 kids and they come in to you one morning and say, well, our our souls are uh, fit to our bodies, but we've decided to switch them today. That you know, I I, I used to be Joe and he used to be Frank, but now uh, I'm Frank and he's Joe. If the soul is fit to the body, why can't identical twins just switch switch bodies? 
If the soul is fit to the body, I wouldn't think they could just actually switch. Well, but they're they're they're, they're identical bodies. There's the, the 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 only distinction between the bodies is what Aristotle would call um, uh, the uh, principle of individuation, uh, the, rather than the principle of intelligibility. That is that they are intelligibly the same body, meaning the, the same shape, size, color, weight, molecular structure, everything. They're just different versions of it. It would seem to be that if, in, in the Cartesian view, if the soul is sort of fit to the body in that sense of, that, well, a, a particular body goes with a particular soul, that if you are to deny the possibility of switching souls among um, identical twins, then you have to accept the Aristotelian concept of individuation as a fundamental metaphysical principle, which puts you into a hylomorphic way of looking at things. Well, then you have to accept the individuation is in the body, then the body or the material is what's doing the individuation of each individual soul, which I think um, is related to the uh, question about insolment um, and how we can make empirically determinate whether a soul is present from the beginning. I think we can test in, in a similar way as hylomorphists are doing and see that there is a full human nature that's present from the very beginning. Right. I think we can do something similar in Cartesianism. There's still something left undetected un, that's not, it's, it's at least not directly empirically accessible. Um, in the same way here, I think um, if, um, if the Cartesian is right, which I think he is, uh, the Cartesians are right about individuation, that individuation is something that is intelligible, not bodily, then there is something that, that, is, that is trickier, is harder, but I... I, I so how, I, so how I would you the, know if, if Joe and Frank switched? How would you talk them out of it? <laughs> Meaning that, well, if, you, if, yeah. if the kid wearing the red shirt and the kid wearing the blue shirt said, "Hey, we just switched," uh, how do you tell the kid wearing the red, the, the the red shirt that no, he's the blue shirt kid? Uh, I, I I mean, I think um, well, I think there are other ways to make that we probably there are other ways that we can tell twins apart. But you're speaking in a hypo. I mean, there's right, physical right, yeah, markers, yeah, right, of course. Right, right. You're, you're, but I mean, there's there's hypothetical situations right, about right. identical. I think okay. I think this gets really at the heart of the issue that um, that I'm that I'm trying to develop in in the sort of the creation self argument, and that is that um, the soul is the individuator, and that um, there's some fundamental feature that makes each individual that individual. Um, and so um, it wouldn't be a matter of talking them out of it. It would be a matter of making a distinction between identical selves and, uh, or the possibility of two identicals, which would be an impossibility at one level, and making a distinction between perfect duplicates. So you might take it that what makes them distinct is their bodies, but there would be some leftover un, unexplained fact that the body and the properties of the body or the properties of, of the psychology of each twin is um, insufficient for individuating the person itself. You could take an instance view, a sort of metaphysics of instances that 
It's just the fact, the brute fact, that this instant is different from this instance in the twins, twin cases. So it doesn't, it doesn't depend on the properties or even the body itself. But um, still, that would be relying on a more fundamental ontology than a sort of hylomorphic ontology of uh, bodily individuation. But, but it would be, it would also require uh, assuming a view that has no contentful or sufficient designation for the instances themselves. What is it about an instant that makes that instant distinct from another instant other than the brute fact that it is this instant and not that instant? But I still think that takes us out of the realm of um, individuating selves by way of the body, which I find unsatisfying if hylomorphism requires that. There may be newer versions of hylomorphism that don't well, require I, that kind I, of individuation. My, my sense of it is, you know, certainly I, 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 there's a lot I don't, I don't know about hylomorphism, and, uh, and I, don't, I don't speak for it anyway. So even if I did know it, I, 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 wouldn't, I, I couldn't generalize necessarily. But um, it, 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 my understanding is that the um, that the hylomorphism is generally uh, an, an uh, essentialist uh, metaphysical perspective, which is that each human being uh, has an essence, and the essence of the of the human being is not his soul, nor is it his body. It's the composite of the two, um, and that uh, that essence is what determines who and what you are. So that uh, Joe and Frank couldn't switch uh, because each because Joe is essentially Joe, not because of his body and not because of his soul, but because of him <laughs> as a unified person. Uh, and so switching just doesn't make any sense from an essentialist viewpoint. But I, 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 I fear that from a um, substance dualist viewpoint, it could be made to make sense. You know, you know, it's it's you know, obviously most substance dualists I think would resist that, but you could see how a person might make some sense of that from a substance dualist standpoint. Yeah, I think that's right. So I'm an essentialist too, and the way that I'm making the argument, I'm an essentialist. There is an essence, um, but it would have to be something like a Higgsiety that makes sense of the individuals and their particularities, not right. their generables, not the structures from their body that that um, is there. Uh, right. from the beginning, uh, not the properties, not the psychological properties, but there's an underlying fact that makes them them. And, right. um, and if we, uh, but, but that would then, um, if you take a hylomorphic direction, then it, it seems to, um, you have to, um, place a Sadie elsewhere from the body, unless you, you, then you, if you don't do that and you say that it is a bodily property, then you have to accept this sort of weird untoward metaphysical picture that bodies are fundamentally hexaic in nature all the way down and that human bodies are just larger, uh, more complex hexaities of underlying hexaities. And then we get into a different kind of uh, weird question about whether or not physical particles have hexaides, which most physicists would deny, and certainly quantum physicists would would deny right. that they do. Um, and well, that raises a whole question about the hylomorphic, the glo the the broader sort of macro or global hylomorphic ontology and in, in, in question. Um, 
which I don't deal with directly, but that that I, I my my whole argument uh, is that if you are going to go this direction, even even if you go it as uh, as a holomorphist, then you have to place the identity. Um, the identity is found elsewhere. It's found in the immaterial substance, not in the physical particles or the the complex um, uh, relation. Um, the complex arrangement of, of particles that are insufficient for designating the individual under uh, uh, in question. And so um, maybe you could do that as a hylomorphist, but you still have to say that the identity is found in the immaterial substance rather than the material substance. And that is something that seems to be, well, the best explanation is that it's, it's created directly and immediately by an intelligent being that has the ability to just bring it about directly and immediately rather than through some sort of generalizable process because the generables themselves are insufficient for designating the person in, in, in question. Mm-hmm. What, what, what I think is remarkable that, that we're sort of kind of experiencing here in real time is how these devilish cultural and social issues relate to um, esoteric metaphysical theories. Uh, and it's, it's quite interesting that, that, that uh, you know, uh-huh. there, there certainly is a, is a, there's a, there've been times in human history when the idea that a man can become a woman by wanting to be and vice versa uh, would have just been thought of as a, just a sign of mental illness or demonic possession or something. And we've just been laughed, laughed away. Uh, now we're taking it very, very seriously. And underneath that, I get a sense that we're taking metaphysical perspectives seriously, perhaps that we didn't take in the past. Maybe the rise of panpsychism and the rise of transgenderism have something in common. Um, it's interesting stuff. Yeah, that is interesting. That raises other questions. We're certainly seeing more discussion about esotericism now as well. And right. um, we're certainly seeing more discussion about the demonic and it seems and um, even more occultic activity as well that is seems to be on the rise not only in discussions it seems to be more out in public now uh maybe even practiced more widely than it was i I don't know or maybe it's just more public there's a there's a wonderful book by uh, Jonathan Kahn, I think his name is C A H N, I believe. It's called Return of the Gods. I don't know if if, if you've heard of it, uh, it's a just a fantastic book. Uh, Kahn is a uh, Messianic Jew, um, and he um, has, he's, he's written several very interesting books about uh, modern day culture, and he's his thesis is that um, uh, before the rise of Christianity. Um, uh, the, the, the world was dominated by paganism and, um, the pagan gods, uh, really ruled the world. They either ruled the world in reality and sort of as demonic forces, which, which many of us believe, or they ruled it at least figuratively, uh, the, the, the people acted in accordance with what they believed these gods wanted and they were driven out by the rise of Christianity. Uh, and they're back. That is, that they're, that they're all coming back now. Uh, and he points out that so much of, of the cultural stuff that we're experiencing, issues of homosexuality and transgenderism and sexual liberation, all of that um, are really had echoes back in the pre-Christian pagan times. Uh, there, there were pride parades back, back you know, hmm. before Christ. Uh, and he goes into a great deal of detail. It's a fascinating book, A, Re- a Return of the Gods by Jonathan Kahn. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 
Anyway, I, I, I thank you, Joshua. Um, uh, this has been a fascinating discussion, and we, we need to keep doing this. I'd, I'd love to talk to talk with you more about this. Very good. I appreciate so, it. Thank you. So, thank you, and thank you to our audience for joining us at Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Mike Egner, and please uh, take a look at his uh, superb uh, book, uh, The Creation of Self. Uh, thank you, Joshua. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.